Hey, you know, if you go on Amazon.com and you type in the word Gnostic, you will get over 30,000 book hits. 30,000. I mean, the, the topic of the Gnostics used to be something relegated to the back rooms of seminary classrooms, but today, this is all the rage, and it's used by your pseudo-intellectual friends at work and your neighbors, and they believe that all this discussion about the Gnostics has disproven the Bible. So I don't apologize for spending a little bit more time on that topic tonight, and we're going to do that. can't do this without some review, so let's review. Thought in God's mind, got to get into the head of the author, we call that step, Revelation, and that's still not as strong as I would have hoped, and still some of you are peaking. Once it's in the head of the biblical author, it's got to get on paper. God has a, uh, has a governing program for that that we call very good inspiration, or better yet, God breathed, right? We've got it now on paper, but you know, there's a lot of things on paper. Is it really a part of God's inspired or God breathed library? And that step is called canonicity. Very good. And if we have these documents now and they are a part of God's inspired library, they've got to make it through 2,000 years, at least 2,000 to 3,400 years of uh, traversing the times. And we call that transmission. Once we have those documents laid out on the tables in varying states of decay uh, from the second century, and some would argue even from the first century, the Magellan Papyrus, more on that later, all the way to uh, medieval documents, uh, we now have to put those into our Hebrew Old Testaments and Greek New Testaments, what we call our critical editions. We call that step. We'll talk about that. And then we've got our Hebrew Bibles and our Greek Bibles. We've got to turn those into something we can read more readily and easily. We call that translation translation had somebody accuse us of uh, choosing a lazy translation of the ESV I can't wait to uh, respond to that statement on the website but I thought to myself when I read that hey if you don't want to be lazy let's just preach out of the Greek New Testament and the Hebrew Old Testament and we'll call it a day but uh, that's not of course what I think that critic was looking for all right enough of that we're talking about we're talking about Gnostics, 30,000 books on Amazon. It comes as a, as a surprise to you. That's a lot of books about the old uh, Gnostic heresy. This is by way of review here, and we had no outline for this, right? I mean, this was on the back page of something. Where, where are we, 25? The opposing page to 25 there. We had Christ 30 AD. We had these uh, Gnostic st uh, gospels, or so it's claimed. We had Constantine who got rid of those, those truthful Gnostic Gospels, then he gave us the Bible, which is a phony Jesus. It's a savior from heaven. The real Jesus was the human rabbi that the Gnostics gave us. Okay? And we were responding to that claim. And we had gotten to this place last week that the anti-Nicene and the post-Nicene writings right, speak to us about the same Christ. And we tried to prove that. If you're new with us, you want to listen to that message from last time. We've got the same Christ pre-Nicene and post-Nicene. We don't have a different Christ, and the reason is we've got a New Testament uh, that is being exegeted from both sides of the Council of Nicaea, and the Council of Nicaea was all about canonicity, right? No, thank you. Had zero to do with canonicity. It was all about Christology. It's all about the deity of Christ, the Arian controversy, 
had nothing to do with candidacy. Even if you just remember that one line when someone starts talking to you about what they learned in the Da Vinci Code and like, you know, the, the rest of the pseudo-intellectual writings of our day, uh, you can just respond to them, did you know that the Council of Nicaea had nothing to do with which books uh, belonged in the canon of Scripture? Had zero to do with that. All it was about was about this heretic named Arius and, uh, yeah, they did have a vote, but it wasn't close. Remember, we learned, uh, T-Bing said, oh, a close vote at that. Uh, you know, it was, you know le- over 300 pastors there and only a couple dissenting bo- votes of folks that wanted to side with the heretic Arian. All right, now let's get a little time frame here and just to drive this home a little bit. If the ministry of Christ was between 30 and 33 A.D., the public ministry of Christ, okay, let's just put this on a timeline from 10 A.D. to 200 A.D., Just to give us some rationale to what we're saying, we're saying that all 27 books of the New Testament were written between 48, right, and 95 A.D. Now, those are small letters, but hopefully you can can read that. And and you don't want to recreate this. this, You won't have time to do that. But just, just soak this in. And this is a bit of review and an expanded timeline here. The Christian leaders, and we referenced many of them last week, starting at around 100 A.D., began to quote uh, the New Testament and began to quote and summarize the doctrine of the New Testament relating to Jesus Christ. We then had, uh, because these manuscripts, as we'll see as we study textual criticism, uh, they deteriorated, so we're finding fragments of them. The oldest fragment, the P52, Papyrus 52, the Rylands Papyrus from the book of John, is dated back to 117 A.D., We'll talk about the Magellan Papyrus when we get to textual criticism, which some claim is actually a first century document, and there is a case for that. But traditional textual criticism, 117, we've got uh, scraps beginning at that particular point on the timeline. The Gnostics now, and I got a picture that I thought would represent the pot-smoking VW bug driving, uh, or their VW van driving Gnostics. Uh, That started in about 125 with the earliest document that we've got uh, that is codifying the the teaching of Gnosticism, the Gospel of Thomas, which was written in 150, which was the first document that had the Gnostic leanings that spoke of something about Christ that was then summarily and consistently condemned from Arrhenius forward. He wrote against the Gnostics in 184 A.D., So that's a complicated chart, but you get the picture here. We've got New Testament documents from 48 to 95. That's the claim, eyewitness documents about Christ, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. We've got extant manuscripts all the way to 117 A.D., perhaps even uh, in the 60 A.D., if you take the Magellan argument from uh, Oxford uh, seriously. More on that later. You've got the Gospel of Thomas claiming to be written in 150 and nothing extant anywhere close to that. Uh, More on that when we talk about uh, textual criticism, just comparing the Gnostic Nag Hammadi library to the New Testament manuscripts. And then we've got writings against the Gnostics beginning in 184, okay? What you need to know is from that time on, we begin to have the rise of Gnosticism and all the rebuttals. And all these funky books that are on the shelf now at Barnes and Noble and and all the rest of the modern day bookstores. And they're all reprinted on the internet with fancy covers now uh, when they are printed in the bookstores. Okay, That trend was from about 225 when it really hit its pace to about 400 AD. Okay, That gives us a little bit of a time frame. 
And remember, the claim of the pseudo-intellectuals of our day is Gnosticism preceded Nicaea, and that's true, it did precede Nicaea, and it ramped up before 325 AD, but we do not have the absence of New Testament documents. As a matter of fact, we have more New Testament documents, uh, you know, uh, next to comparing zero to the Gnostic documents, all the way back to the first or second century. So uh, let's now learn a little bit about the Gnostics. What about these writings? I'll quote some here that should be familiar to you. Uh, if you've paid any attention to what's going on in the 30,000 books that are now published and available on Amazon.com. What about these Gnostics? Let's learn a little bit about the Gnostics. And again, I've got no page for this, so hopefully you'll find some blank space. The Gnostics and the Gnostic Gospels, which is all the rage, the stories of Christ, they were written after the generation of the eyewitnesses. The earliest Gnostic writings we have claim to be written and are decidedly written mid-2nd century, at the earliest. Most of them pop up in the 3rd and 4th centuries. Okay? That's what we've got, and that's an important observation. Okay, you can say that they were the earliest Gospels, but you've got to prove that, and no one does. They just make unwarranted claims. The Gnostic Gospels were falsely ascribed to people who didn't write them. Obviously, we've got these people... 100, 200, 300 years after the life of Christ, writing gospels in the name of Mary Magdalene, Thomas, Barnabas. They're dead. So we know they just on the surface are, at least by title, pseudopigrapha. They're false writings. They claim to be written by someone who didn't write them. Okay? The Gnostic gospels were inconsistent with the Old Testament and New Testament, and we'll look at why. Uh, a little bit further. We touched on a few reasons last week. And then, even though Dan Brown and the rest of the crew says, well, you know, the Gnostic Gospels are the real deal. There's lots of Gnostic writings. If you pick up uh, Gnostic scriptures from Barnes & Noble or you look on the internet for the Gnostic scriptures, you'll find lots of bizarre writings about various philosophical and theological topics, but very few, quote-unquote, Gospels that try to discuss specifically the life of Christ. Okay, very few Gnostic texts claim to be Gospels. Very few. So, Dan Brown seems to think there were hundreds of Gospels to choose from. I would love for him to show me where those are because there are not hundreds of Gospels to choose from. There's probably less than seven to choose from uh, as you look through the ancient documents. And the latest ones are Gnostic Gospels. The earliest ones are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, remember the modern claims regarding the Gnostics, okay? Three things, basically, that the people today, the pseudo-intellectuals say, well, this is the truth about Gnostics. The Gnostics are the ones that got it right about Jesus. And what did they get right? Well, that he was fully human and a good Jewish rabbi. They were all about the humanity of Christ, just like, as they say, you ought to be. Forget all this supernatural stuff about walking on the water and the transfiguration and healing people and be- dying and rising from that. We don't believe in any of that. We believe what the Gnostics believed. And what the Gnostics believed they would have you believe is that they were all about a human Jesus. That's what you need to be into, the human Christ, because that's what they taught. Secondly, they said uh, he's a feminist, which plays well in today's modern crowd. He was goddess-worshipping. He was against this real strong male figure, and he was probably a little effeminate. Who knows? The guy was not a masculine 
uh, male-worshipping God. He was a rabbi, humble rabbi, and he was all about females. He saw that females and feminism, that was all the important priority, not men. He was a man-hater. He didn't know that about it. And he was married with children. Didn't have a television show, but he had kids married to Mary Magdalene. Okay, you've heard this before, right? Okay, let's just compare some of these claims that I think a lot of folks with the 30,000 books floating around about Gnosticism today, I mean, this is the view they have. If they're, if they're knowledgeable at all, they say, well, this is it. Canonicity messed this up. Real canonicity, right? If you really were to go back to the truth about Christ, you'd have gospels that spoke of a fully human, feminist, married with children rabbi. Constantine messed this up. Let's talk about the Gnostics based on their own writings, okay? A couple things. Uh, Gnostics, I don't think we dealt with this, so I put this line in there for you, uh, was a second to fourth century group claiming special knowledge. Gnosis, that's what the Greek word means. Gnosis means knowledge. Knowledge, gnosis. Diagnosis, right? The knowledge inside. Prognosis, the knowledge about the future and how this sickness is going to work out. Um, Gnosis, knowledge. What they believed as a, as a group, if you had to write a paper on Gnosticism, as we usually do in seminary, you, you discover as you read source material that they were really big into what we call dualism. And dualism was the belief that there is physical and spiritual. Physical is bad and spiritual is good. And they mean that not in the sense that Peter or Paul might speak about, you know, fighting against the desires of the flesh. They mean it if it's concrete, corporal, and real, it's bad. You need to shut your eyes and you need to find as you tune in to the spiritual, the incorporal, the non-tangible side of reality, that's where good is found. It's not found in, in anything physical here and now, which, by the way, is not the philosophy of modern pseudo-intellectuals, right? Very different, and really, we'll, we'll see, is not at all fitting with their view of what they think they taught about Christ. Uh, maybe you've heard this, and this is important. I saw this as late as yesterday on the television, uh, referring to early Christians, uh, that they believed that we possessed the divine spark. That phrase, that teaching, if you read anything about early um, oriental or eastern history that is their philosophy it's not a biblical philosophy we do believe we were created in the image of god but we do not believe that god is within so the you know the harvard professors who write books about gnosticism they love this part because the gnostics were always trying to find godhood within because they believe they possessed part of the divine nature the divine spark not in a biblical or christian sense the goal was to escape the physical and to become self-realized, which again is a very popular conversational verbiage for today. But the point is, we want to get away from this. It's kind of like the Eastern religions that grew up later uh, in various parts of the world, where you wanted to escape from this. You want to reach some kind of spiritual nirvana. That's what the Gnostics taught. Physical aspects of Christ. Okay, now this is important. Read the Gnostic Gospels. Human life of Christ, the crucifixion, the resurrection, those are all myths and illusions. Some taught that because it didn't matter. We don't care about that. And so whatever they say about Christ bodily rising from the dead or that he was you know, doing all these things to heal people physically, we don't care about that because that's not where it's at. Where it's at is in the spiritual side, sitting on a rock contemplating your own divinity. 
Sin is not our problem. The Gnostics didn't like to talk about sin. Matter of fact, they were libertarians, most of them. There were small sects that were ascetic, but most sects were libertarians. Do whatever you want. Have sex with as many people as you want. You know, we put whatever kinds of, you know, things you can into your life that make you feel good because the physical side of your life doesn't matter. They just want to be self-realized. Now, if you were to write a paper, I mean, if I were grading one, you'd have to have these concepts to define what Gnosticism was in the second and third century. Little sidebar here, if, if any of this is interesting to you, and I'm hoping to some perhaps it is, because we're talking about it for 15 minutes now, um, but if you want to read more about it, two books that I think from an evangelical perspective will help you. Peter Jones, and I think he's done the best from an evangelical perspective to look at the Gnostics and to see how, why, see why and how the Gnostics are popular today. This is one of my old professors uh, at, at Westminster, Peter Jones, and he wrote The Gnostic Empire Strikes Back, uh, and, and that is obviously a play on words. And then he wrote a much bigger work called Spirit Wars, Pagan Revival uh, in, in Christian America. And then he talked about the inroads of this into even Pentecostalism and, and, and a lot of things that have gone on in America under the name of God and Christ. But both of those works, if you want to get into this more, uh, that may be helpful. Now, what did the Gnostics actually write? Let's quote some Gnostics. Uh, Gospel of Philip, third century pseudopigrapha. Uh, they did, Gospel of Philip did say Mary was a companion of Jesus. Now, Dan Brown makes so much out of this one statement. Um, the New Testament makes that statement. There's nothing big about that at all. Um, common statement. Matter of fact, I think the word, uh, and I'd have to look this up, is the related word to koinonia. They were part of the fellowship, a companion of, of Christ. Okay? Which, of course, the New Testament says the same thing. This is the sentence, ready, that is all the controversy. Matter of fact, if you go on the internet and look about was Christ married, you will have the Gospel of Philip, verse 55, right? Because it's all just one big chapter, verse 55. This will be quoted. What you need to know is there's no complete manuscript of this because they didn't consider it the Bible. It was pseudopigraphy. It was rejected by every mainstream Christian. They never collected these books and read them and taught from them. So we don't have all the manuscripts. We don't have a complete Gospel of Philip. This is what we have, Okay from verse 55. And I've taken this from the Greek version of the Gospel of Philip and put this here into English as best I could. Okay? The claim is that what that says is that the Savior loved Mary Magdalene. Can you see that? More than all the disciples and kissed her on her mouth often. Okay? That's how Dan Brown will quote this. And that's how the Gnostics have come to the understanding that Mary Magdalene was the wife of Jesus, okay? Now, of course, that's not what it says. could say he kissed her on, you know, her earlobe. There's nothing there to tell us where he kissed her, and there's nothing there that even says, you know, that it was um, more than all, more than some, more than others. It doesn't say. That, though, is the smoking gun, and it comes from a pseudopigraphal, by that I mean it wasn't written by Philip, document that came from the third century that we don't even have a full copy of. Okay? Now, some things that you need to know. 
about the Gnostics. More on why he wasn't married in a minute. Because you'll, you'll quote the Bible and that doesn't count for them, even though it predates any of the Gnostic writings. What did the rest of the Gospel of Philip say for the goddess-worshipping, feministic Jesus? Okay? The perfect conceive through a kiss and give birth. Okay? Because of this, we kiss one another. Kissing was a big deal. And it was a big deal because it was something in their minds that wasn't really physical. It was something spiritual. And something spiritual happened to you in a kiss between the divine sparks. Okay? That sounds weird to you. Pull out your Frisbee, sort out your hemp, and take a puff. You know? I mean, this is where, this is how they live. This is how they think. Of course, I'm not advocating marijuana use. You understand that. Please don't. A Gentile man, speaking of its view of the world, does not die, for he has never lived that he should die. That's the Gospel of Philip, verse 4. These verses are big, by the way, if you do read through the Gospel of Philip, and you might as well, but brace yourself. Uh, Neither is good good, nor evil evil, nor is life life. You'll get a lot of those kinds of lines from the Gospel of Philip. Cool, man. Um just to show you what we're dealing with here. Because I know when you read this and you think, well, you know, this gives me some good biographical information about Jesus' love life. You just need to know it's preluded and surrounded with bizarre philosophical psychedelic statements like that. Okay? Now, if Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene, I would think in the Gnostic gospel that bore the name Mary Magdalene, then of course Mary Magdalene would claim to be Mrs. Jesus in Mary Magdalene, right? Okay, you just need to know the gospel of Mary Magdalene, which is a real Gnostic gospel, what we have of it never claims Jesus was married. As a matter of fact, there is no Gnostic gospel that ever claims Jesus was married. The closest we get to it is the statement from the gospel of Philip, which says that he loved her blank than the disciples and kissed her uh, often on the, the blank. nor any of the three Gnostic books that bear her name. There is more than the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, which, by the way, these covers came right off the covers that I have. I believe I have these versions with these covers. These are the covers they sell and reprint, and you can find at the modern bookstores. So you can read through the whole Gospel of Mary Magdalene, and you won't find anything about Jesus being married to her. There are three Gnostic books about Mary Magdalene, Questions of Mary, Gospel of Mary, and the Genealogy of Mary, and none of those books ever refer to Jesus being married to Mary Magdalene. Now again, read the Da Vinci Code, and you're convinced, well, of course, that's what the Gnostics believed. Well, there's no evidence of that at all. Now remember the claims of the Gnostics regarding the Gnostics. This is kind of small, but let's read it. Constantine and his male successors successfully converted the world from matriarchal paganism, which all was true and right. We should have stuck with it. To patriarchal Christianity by waging a campaign of propaganda that demonized the sacred feminine, which is all the rage in that writing, and in some um, you know, of the modern commentaries on the Gnostics, but I'll show you it's ridiculous. Obliterating the goddess from modern religion forever, which is a sad, tearful moment for Dan Brown. Okay? The early church conned the world by propagating lies that devalued the female and tipped the scales in favor of the masculine. It's a man's world. You know why? Constantine. Uh, and you know, you wouldn't be living in a man's world, according to those folks, if we just could have stuck with the real biblical Jesus, which 
the biblical Jesus is the real Bible, which is the Gnostic Gospels, right? Uh, okay, I don't think you want to live in a world that is run by the Gnostics. Let me tell you why, ladies. Simon Peter, this is the Gospel of Thomas, verse 114. Simon Peter said to them, let Mary go out from among us because women are not worthy of life. Okay? But Jesus is going to respond, so don't worry. Here comes, here comes Christ to save us. Jesus said, I, make, I myself shall lead her so that I will make her male. Okay? That she too may become a living spirit. Did you know, gals, you're not a living spirit in the Gnostic theology? Resembling you males. See, if I can make her a male, then she'll be a living spirit. For every woman who makes herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, you see why smoking through your water bong all afternoon <laughs> and reading about how Jesus said in the real gospels that you need to become like a child to enter the kingdom of God, you may, in a spark of you know, uh, Gnostic inspiration, come up with the idea that, hey, let's, it'd be really cool, man, to say, you got to become a man to get in the kingdom of heaven. You see how this all works and fits? But it's nonsense. It's craziness. And, and the demons must laugh when these, you know, college-educated folks that live in Orange County want to pawn off in your face that the Gnostics had it right and they were just like us, cool, hip, really happen in kind of feministic, you know, you know, followers of the real human rabbi Jesus, and you Christians, you're all messed up. You've got to be kidding me. Does that help a little bit? I, I, tr I threw so much out of this, and I know you're thinking, wow, really? Um, we could talk so much more about it, but this isn't a, a lecture series on the Gnostics. But you do need to know that the modern rage of saying Gnostic Gospels should be the canonical Gospels, you just need to know is nonsense. Not just because it's crazy, but because it is written centuries after the real Christ and has nothing to do with biblical truth. Certainly doesn't coincide with Old Testament truth or New Testament truth. Okay, enough on that. Let's get back to our outline. Document debates. <laughs> Did you survive that section? That was tough. That was tough. Barely, right? Okay, you'll go away at least knowing Gnostic's bad. <laughs> Bible, good. Right? I mean, if you got that, I guess it's okay. All right, where are we at now? Okay, page 24. I said we were on 25. We weren't even at the 25 yet. Oh, no, wait a minute. Yeah, now we're on 25. Let's talk about the Apocrypha. How many of you grew up in the Roman Catholic Church? Now we're talking about something you can... No one grew up in a Gnostic Church, right? So now we can relate to this. Let's talk about the Apocrypha. All right. Literal meaning, the Apocrypha, it means hidden or concealed. Hidden or concealed. And while some have, and I probably uh, reiterated this in the past, have to do, uh, try to take this word and, 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 and talk about meaning, that's really not the point. Pseudopigrapha has some really bizarre concealed meaning in it. Uh, the Apocrypha was, was tucked away. It was, it was, you know, it's concealed. This is the front playing set of books, and the Apocrypha is the back set of books. It's tucked away. It's concealed in that it doesn't get headliner, you know, time. It doesn't get spotlight time, hidden or concealed. That's the sense of the concept of um, Apocrypha, hidden or concealed. 
Okay? Which is a good way for us to remember this. What is the Apocrypha? Well, the Apocrypha is a set of books that shouldn't be prominently you know, getting airtime in our, in our Bibles. Another word you might want to put next to this, which I didn't put on your outline, maybe next to letter B, Apocrypha, is deuterocanonical. Deuterocanonical. Deutero, right? Like Deuteronomy. Deutero means two or second. Instead of Deuteronomy, nonmos, the law, it's not the second giving of the law. Uh, it's deuterocanonical. It's the second canon. And it's the second canon because of the Council of Trent in the 16th century, and more on that later. That was the time when they said, let's come up with a second canon. I know that's not how your Catholic friends uh, put it, but I'll try to show you historically this is, that's a good term for it, deuterocanonical. Okay, but we'll stick with the common word, the Apocrypha, okay, because that's just so common. All right, some things about the Apocrypha. They contain, if you just glance through the list here, we're going to describe them now, look down the list. They contain additions to Old Testament books. Some are titled that way. Additions to Daniel, which really is a set of three books. Additions to Esther, okay? The epistle to Jeremiah, well, that would seem to add to the book of Jeremiah, right? The prayer of Manasseh, it stuck into the middle of Second Chronicles, Wisdom of Solomon, well, that goes in that whole set of books there that Solomon wrote. Even, uh, even the first couple books, Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah, the whole uh, post-exilic period, first Estras and second Estras, those are books that you would say augment the Old Testament. They contain additions. Some of them advance intertestamental history, and those are the most helpful. First Maccabees and second Maccabees, they cover the period... Uh, specifically the drama between 175 and 134 BC, the Maccabean Revolt, Antiochus Epiphanes, the Ptolemies. All of that is important historical information between the 400 silent years between Malachi and Matthew. We've got 400 years of silent biblical history for important reasons. We talked about that, I think, a little bit when we talked about predictive prophecy. But in that 400-year period, the most important things that happened, that happened to Israel, we learn about uh, in part from First and Second Maccabees. So those are two things that they do. Now, Jerome's 5th century Vulgate originally excluded these books. These is spelled wrong. <laughs> Sorry. The Vulgate. Remember we talked about the Vulgate? We'll talk about that more when we talk about English translations because it's a very important foundation to English translations. But the Vulgate is the... Vulgate means vulgar. And the vulgar, vulgar means common. You got high language and vulgar language. We say vulgar is profanity, but vulgarity, that Latin word, it, it comes uh, to us to mean the common language. And when we took the Hebrew and Greek and turned that into the language of the people, the language of the people in the day was Latin. So that Latin translation is very important because it's a very early translation that was written for Christians. And Jerome states clearly that these editions of these books uh, don't, don't belong. Later, though, they were added, and they were added under a special heading, and we'll talk more about that as we go along. But Jerome's Vulgate, you always got to ask, what did Jerome do with this? And it became very popular during, uh, obviously, from the 5th century all the way to the 16th century, the Vulgate. Some of you grew up in churches. Did you grow up in a Catholic church where they spoke and did all the liturgy in Latin still? I mean, the Vulgate, critical, right? Um, I mean, that was the text of, of American worship even for years in, in Catholic circles. 
Okay, not a part of the Hebrew canon. One of the most important things you need to get in your mind about the Apocrypha is that they're not Hebrew texts, right? That tells you something right there. They're not Hebrew texts, and they weren't a part of the Hebrew canon. These are New Testament, for the most part, New Testament documents. Let me stop that. They were from the New Testament era where they put them and and attached them to Old Testament books. And they were not in Hebrew. They were in Greek. And they were never something that the rabbis and the Jews embraced as canonical scripture. They're not a part of the Hebrew canon. Christians have embraced them reservedly, some sections, and we'll talk about that. And after the 16th century, they embraced them whole hog. But Hebrew followers of Yahweh never did. They are found collected with early Christian collections in Greek. The Septuagint, for instance, which precedes the Vulgate. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. In the 3rd century BC, Alexander the Great takes over the world. He wants a Greek library in Alexandria. He gets all these people together, tries to translate all the great books of the world so he can have them in Greek in his library. He picks 70 or 72, the story goes both ways, scholars who took the Old Testament and translated it into Greek, Septuagint. Okay? We find that as the Septuagint grew, and by that I mean, I mean they, they obviously had copies of the copies of the copies. As we found more copies of the Septuagint, we had more of these books attached to them. By the time we get to the 3rd century BC or AD, 600 years after the original, original Septuagint, we've got most of these books somehow labeled and attached to the Old Testament books. And that makes sense because the editions were in Greek and Alexander the Great wanted all the Greek documents together. Late op- authorship. Obviously, the letter of Jeremiah was not written during Jeremiah's day in the 6th century BC. I mean, the best we can figure on a lot of these, they were written either in the intertestamental period after Alexander the Great, or they were written even in New Testament times, late authorship. That's why they weren't in the Hebrew canon or even considered for the Hebrew canon. Trying to find my mouse. There it is. Was it on my, was it over my shoulder? Scary. They contain errors and contradiction. And that's an important thing because one of the things we said about canonicity is if it really is God-breathed, we shouldn't find errors and contradictions. There's so much we could look at. Uh, Matter of fact, even if you just typed into the internet, which is scary because you don't always get accurate information, but if you just said errors in the Apocrypha, you'll find some good sites. I found some this week that had some pretty decent lists of itemizing the errors. Uh, Books are better, and I'll give you some book titles here in a minute, but... um, Esther is a classic example. There are six additions in this additions to Esther, which is halfway down the page, considerably increases the size of the Septuagint. That's the LXX, 70, right? 70, that's the abbreviation. I should have spelled that out. Um, The Septuagint version of Esther is bigger. Six sections are added to the Hebrew uh, story of Esther, and they all elaborate on the story of Esther. The problem is it's not harmonized. Haman is said to be from Macedonia and not an Amalekite. Um, The dating is contradictory. Esther comes into the king's presence in the Apocrypha and the king is is enraged. That's not what the Hebrew text says and those can't be harmonized. Um, The reason for for the plot, all these things are different and they just can't be harmonized. And the book of Esther is a great case study. And I never had to write a paper, but if I was going to, that would be the book I would center on to show just so many incontrovertible 
uh, or I should say, irresolvable contradictions in the book of uh, the six editions to Esther. Some people ask, always ask, was any of the, were any of these books, maybe somebody's thinking it here, and you can nod at me if you were, uh, any of these books found in the Dead Sea Scrolls? And we haven't talked much about the Dead Sea Scrolls, but the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, preceded the New Testament. And that would be important because most of what we have left of the Septuagint is after the New Testament era. And the answer is at least two. Um, and one we haven't even listed yet. It's in what we call the expansions on the Apocrypha, more on that in a minute, and the letter to Jeremiah. That one we found fragments of in the Dead Sea Scroll caves. But they're not well represented there because the Hebrews and the Essenes, if the Essenes were the ones who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, they weren't big on the, Sept or the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha, um, the, the canon rather, 38 of the 39 books were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Did I say that already? It's a good one to repeat, though. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, which predate Christ, 39, 38 of the 39 books were found in the Dead Sea Scroll caves. Multiple copies. Have I said that before? It's important. Which one wasn't? Esther. Esther, right. Esther. Esther was not found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. A lot of theories on that. And two apocryphal fragments. One more than a fragment. I'll talk about that later. These books have been a Christian postscript since until 1546. That's the Council of Trent. These books, and this is my contention, and I know Catholics will argue with me on this, but I'd love to see the proof. Okay? I know Jerome Vulgate eventually had them. I know that they were always a part of the Vaticanus and Sinaiticus and all these ancient documents, but they were all an appendage. They were all tucked behind. They were the Apocrypha because they didn't get headlining billing. They were behind. They were hidden. They were, they were tucked away. They were a Christian postscript until 1546. The Reformation condemned indulgences. Just a quick history lesson here. You remember why Martin Luther and the rest got so mad at the church. Well, they were abusing their power. What was the big thing that sparked the whole Wittenberg door deal on October 31st, you know, so many years ago now, 400 years ago, 500 years ago? It was because the church was selling indulgences. They had building projects, just like modern churches have building projects, but instead of having a campaign where we put up pictures of architectural plans and say, please, would you give so we could fit all the people into our new church, they said, hey, here's the deal I'll make with you. You want your grandmother out of, out of purgatory, which uh, you know would be a good thing probably? Just give me 5,000 bucks and we'll get her out. We'll get her out early. You want her to suffer? You want your granny to suffer? Fine, fine, keep your money. Give me a thousand bucks and I can cut her time in half. But you give me five thousand, I'll get her out today. That's what the church was doing. It was called indulgences. Which, by the way, read the modern uh, catechism of the Catholic Church. There's still a section there on the doctrine of indulgences. The church still believes that. People say they don't, but they do. It's in their, their, their clear statements of doctrine. The Reformation condemned indulgences. Okay? Here's the deal. Council of Trent, in what we call the Counter-Reformation gave these books canonical status. Primarily, they claim for three or four passages, but the clearest passage of all, the other ones aren't even worth looking at, is 2 Maccabees 1244. So turn to 2 Maccabees, and let's look at this one. don't have that. Where is my... Oh, I printed it. I thought I had it on my notes here. I don't. Here comes 2 Maccabees 1244 and 45. Actually, I didn't even put 45 which is a lot of verbiage we don't need. Here's the, here's, here's the smoking gun for the leaders and the cardinals 
and bishops of the Catholic Church in the 16th century. For Judas Maccabeus, he's the star of the Maccabean Revolt, they were not expect, uh, were they not expecting that those who had fallen, those who had died in, in the war, in the revolt, would rise again. If they hadn't believed that they, those who had died in, in battle would rise again, then it would have been superfluous and foolish to pray for the dead. Okay? Now, a couple things you need to remember about this passage. Let's just take it at face value and say there's nothing wrong with this passage. Uh, in other words, you could say, if it's not canonical, why even consider it? But let's just say, okay, this is accurately recording a legitimate theological thought. Number one, it's a narrative passage where we're just recording what Judas Maccabeus thought and did, right? Secondly, you need to understand progressive revelation. Even if we're going to say Judas Maccabeus stands right in the middle of a line of God's developing revelation for his people, what did we know about the resurrection? By the time we get to the intertestamental period, we don't know much about it. From the end of the book of Daniel, all we know is that those who sleep in the dust of the earth will rise again. That's why the Seventh-day Adventists and the Jehovah Witnesses and whoever else who believe in soul sleep, they always quote the Old Testament because we don't see a lot of clear revelation. Now we get in the New Testament and now we have the, you know, present, you know, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We get clarity on it all. For me to live as Christ, to die as gain, we see it clearly. God gives us more revelation. We didn't have a lot of that. So here is the hope of Daniel. The dead and the righteous will rise. So Judas looks at the battlefield of righteous Jewish followers of Yahweh and says, we're going to pray for these people that have died because he's concerned about their resurrection and I'm going to pray for them. That is what we learn from this text, okay? And to me, okay, that's what Judas Maccabeus believed. Even if I was going to take this as absolute inspired scripture, that's what we have. I don't have the doctrine of purgatory. I certainly don't have the doctrine of indulgences. I certainly can't ask a guy with a funny outfit to you know, get my grandmother out of purgatory. It's not there. This is one of the things the hierarchy of the counter-reformation in the Catholic Church said to the reformers, hey, we're going to make these books canonical. And I should have quoted it. I didn't. But the Council of Trent said, if you now do not accept what we have listed as the 13 books of the Apocrypha as inspired scripture, then let you be damned to hell. The word is anathema. Let you be anathema. And the Catholic Church never, there's been no change since Trent. Matter of fact, the modern catechism of the Catholic Church will incessantly quote the Council of Trent. And the point is, if you don't believe in the extra books that they had authorized in 1546, then you are damned to hell because they wanted those doctrines in holy writ. And while they were always an afterthought, an appendage, a postscript, if you will, to Christian scripture, now they were brought front and center, and the Catholics from the 16th century on said, you better believe these books. And this was one of their favorite verses, because they said, we do have the right to sell indulgences because prayer for the dead, and Judas was concerned about that. They also quote a passage from uh, the wisdom of, of Solomon, um, on purgatory, but I didn't even quote that one for you because it's, it's not even close to, to saying anything about afterlife. It's about the righteous suffering before they die and then being resurrected to uh, blessing. And then he starts talking about, well, when the righteous suffer, talking about martyrs, and he, he compares the difficulty of those righteous people in life, not in death, and then the resurrection of blessing and comfort and solace. 
those are the two big passages. And then the other one, just not even in context. But this one, I mean, we've got enough problems with 1 Corinthians 15 if you want to talk about, you know, baptisms for the dead. But that's a whole other topic. And I've dealt with that on a tape that you can get on fpr.info. Okay? Now, the status of the Apocrypha. Here's my contention. The Reformers have ref- affirmed the long-standing position on the Apocrypha. I know what the Catholic guy will say. The staunch Roman Catholic will say, you know, the Reformers kicked the apocryphal books out of the canon. Not so. Just not so. My contention is, and you'd have to prove it, my contention is that though they were recommended reading from Jerome on, it does not mean that the church and orthodoxy and tradition had ever elevated them to theopneustos status. They were not God-breathed text. And all the reformers did in the counter-counter-reformation say, well, that's not the, the case at all. Here's how Luther put it. These books, which are not held equal to the sacred scriptures, and yet they are useful and good for reading. That's the affirmation of the long-standing tradition of the church. That's what they had always believed. The reformers didn't change anything. The Catholics took them from the back of the book and threw them to the front and said, if you don't believe these now as inspired God-breathed scriptures, then you're, you're damned. Coverdale. I thought this quote might be important because it comes prior to the Council of Trent. Here's what Coverdale said. Coverdale's Bible and the preface to his Bible where he added the Apocrypha. He said, these books are not reckoned to be of like authority with the other books of the Bible, neither are they found in the canon of the Hebrew. And the point is, the Old Testament never thought these books were canonical, and the church isn't going to now consider Old Testament editions hundreds of years later as canonical. That is just an affirmation of the long-standing position of the church. Now, 21st century evangelicals have responded by saying, ooh, don't touch the Apocrypha. And I'm saying, touch it, read it. I think there's nothing wrong with reading it. Do you know that every major English translation, and they started popping up in the 16th century, always included the Apocrypha, always included it. You know, the the King James Version, for all those that are, you know, King James only folks, King James, it's, it's God's Protestant Bible. Do you understand that the King James Bible was initially published with the Apocrypha? always been the case and it's always been set apart from the other books as these are profitable for reading but they're not inspired scripture it was the postscript of christian scripture every major english translation has been published until recently with the apocrypha because it does help us at least understand the best books are the books that give us that intertestamental story first maccabees and second maccabees Some of the other stuff is just, mm, okay, like Esther. What's the problem with Esther for most people? Doesn't mention God. Okay, there's a Sunday school graduate that knows her stuff. Doesn't mention God. Do you know what the additions to Esther do? Mention God all the time. And they try to show you. Here's one thing, the the six additions to Esther. One of them says this. Can't you see, this is a Mike Fabara's paraphrase, God's hand in all these providential or coincidental, you know, things that happened. God is obviously doing this to Esther, okay? I don't think we needed that. And I think the beauty of the book of Esther, if you, if you understand its progression, 
is the implicit theology of God saving his people. But the additions say, God, 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 so that we can fix it, see? I don't think the book of Esther needs, needs to be fixed. Speaking of the ESV, which we're moving to, which, by the way, is a more literal translation than the King James Bible. That was another hit we got on our website. You do understand that, right? Some people, well, it's not, it's not literal. It is a more literal, more word-for-word translation than the 1611 King James Bible. You just need to know that. You can't hardly find a more literal. And that's the complaint I'm getting from the other side. It's too literal. Okay. It's too literal for some. But it's one of the most literal translations that we can get. In the tradition, in the long tradition of the Reformation, the ESV translators just put this out this year, the English Standard Version Bible with the Apocrypha, which some people freak out at. But if you want to freak out at that, especially the KJV-only people, just remember the King James Bible came out with the Apocrypha. And it did it in the first year. Ours did it nine years later, right? Ten, eight years later. ESV came out in 2001. Now they just published the Apocrypha. And I've read m- most of it, a good part of it. I've tried to sit down and read through the ESV version because my other... Oh, there it is. I wanted to circle it for you. See a little circle there? Very small letters, you can't see it, but with the Apocrypha. So if you want to read it in the ESV, three guys did it. They're not Catholics, by the way. Some people are concerned about that. Uh, Translated uh, the Apocrypha. There is, on my shelf, that I refer to most often when I go to the Apocrypha, is this parallel Apocrypha that's got the Greek text, because we don't have Hebrew, King James, Douay, the Knox translation, the uh, Today's English Version, New Revised, New American, and New Jerusalem. It's an eight-translation apocrypha. If you want to read the apocrypha uh, in, you know, to get all the translations out there, which are everywhere from thought for thought, dynamic equivalent, word for word, that's a good one to have on your shelf. If you say, well, I don't want to read it. I just want to know what all these books are about. Well, I give you one line, which isn't en- or probably enough for most of you. Uh, but if you want more, here's a book you should have. And this is a really good book. Daniel uh, Harrington wrote uh, Invitation to the Apocrypha. Now, I'm not really inviting you to the Apocrypha. Uh, matter of fact, don't even read it unless you've read the Bible through from cover to cover at least, I don't know, let's pick an arbitrary number, three times. How about that? If you've read the Bible from cover to cover, time to read the Apocrypha. And read it. Uh, and I'm all for you reading it. If you just want to read the Cliff Note version, this is a good, good book. Matter of fact, this is really helpful. It talks about the issues. It talks about the problems. It talks about summaries. It talks about how it impacts the other books of the Bible. Uh, good little paperback. You can get that through our bookstore. Uh, and an older version, which is a little bit more in-depth, is Bruce Metzger's Introduction to the Apocrypha. It's fascinating. If you've never read the Apocrypha, how many of you have read through the Apocrypha, at least part of it, a good part of it? It's good. I mean, there's a lot there that's worth checking out. Not sure our bookstore will carry that one. (laughs) Maybe they will, I don't know. But you can get that one online or order it through our bookstore. All right, now, I said partial list, and I was sorry about that. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. 13. The reason I called it a partial list is this. This may sound confusing, but it's really not. I listed 13 books. That is the traditional apocrypha. But components of the additions to Daniel are often listed separately. 
And that's why in some apocryphas, you'll find 15 books because the prayer of Azariah and the song of the three young men, Susanna and Bell, the, Bell and the dragon, those are broken out, but they all are appendages to Daniel. So I listed them as one. In 1977, they started publishing an expanded apocrypha, and it makes 18. So I think even the ESV, mm, I think, lists all 18, because you'll get the three broken out from the Daniel one, and you'll get 3rd and 4th Maccabees, which is of limited help, and Psalm 151, which is fascinating, by the way. I said there were two books that were represented in the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, at least two. But the prominent one that is found most often is Psalm 151. And it's only called the Apocrypha because it has recently been included in most publications in what we call the Expanded Apocrypha. And the ESV guys added it, and I'm thankful for that. Psalm 151 is found in almost every copy of the Dead Sea Scroll Psalter of the Psalms. It's fascinating. It's a benign psalm. It's a psalm about David. I should have printed it for you. About David coming from shepherd to king of Israel. But it is interesting that that one was alive and well and copied regularly by the 3rd and 2nd century BC. But in the Hebrew canon, it was excluded. Not sure why. We find great correspondence between the 9th century and 10th century Masoretic text of the Hebrew and the Dead Sea Scrolls with this exception, Psalm 151. So if you get an Apocrypha, see if it has Psalm 151, and it's a benign, no new information, but an interesting psalm of praise about David becoming the king. All right, document debates. Antelogomena, antelogomena. Why are we using that word? Because if you look in books about the canon, you're going to find pseudopigrapha, apocrypha, and antelogomena. Those are words they're going to use, and so I stuck with them. Antelogomena, logos, right? means to speak. Ante means to speak against. Ante legomena. Books that have been spoken against. Now we got the pseudopigrapha, which no one accepted. We got the apocrypha, which some accepted, most of them after the 16th century. Then you've got the antilegomena. Those are books that we have within the 66 books of the New Testament. I'm sorry, the 66 books of the Bible, 39 and 27, 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament, that people have debated. And I've got a chart here for us and we're going to work through this. Oh, description. Books that have been debated at one time or another for one reason or another. Books that have been debated that you have in your Bibles today that have been debated at one time or another and for one reason or another. Now, if you're well-read at all, you know that today you can find books that debate every book of the Bible. <laughs> uh, but I'm talking about traditionally for 1,900 years, which books have been debated. There haven't been that many but I'm going to list them for you here. I've got 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, which is really not 11. It's 12, 13, 13 books. So let's look at them real quickly. This one you can guess. The first debated book is the book you were sneaking peeks at in the back row of church in the seventh grade, Song of Solomon. And your mom goes, I don't know why that book's in the Bible anyway. Song of Solomon has been debated. And if you go back to our list of authority, authorship, accuracy, spiritual authenticity, and acceptance, remember we looked at those as logical questions to ask about any given book. 
authority? Was it, was it you know, stated as being from God? Was authorship? Was it prophetic or apostolic connection? Accuracy? Did it contradict another part of the Bible? Spiritual authenticity? Were you fed by it spiritually and acceptance of God's people? Most people went to the Song of Solomon and says, it's feeding me, but not in my spirit. <laughs> Sorry. Um, you should read it. It's helpful for your marriage, perhaps. Uh, what's this all about? That has been the question, right? It's too sensual. It's too sexual. Uh, people have struggled with it. One of the solutions that the church has had through the generations is to take the book and to make an allegory out of it, which I'm not sure helps the accusation that it's too sensual and too sexual. But, you know, that's what the church has been doing. I mean, even the rabbis did this with it in the Old Testament. They accepted it as canonical, but they struggled with, well, I don't know that it's really about all that breast fondling and all that. So let's make it a, a love story between God and Israel. And the church did the same thing for many years. Let's just say it's Christ and the church, and let's just try and find some kind of meaning so we don't have to talk about the embarrassing sex stuff in the book. I think that's a mistake. I think it's such a part and a powerful part of our human experience that God put a book in it, put a book in his library about it that we could understand that Sex is not a bad thing. It's a good thing if it's practiced in the right context. So it's an interesting love-hate relationship because while it's been strongly accepted, it's been debated on the grounds of it. I'm not sure it's helping me be more godly. But I think there's lots of things in the Bible that we misunderstand about that. For instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if you take that... Now let's turn there real quick. I want to talk about sex really, but let's... Let's, I'll show you that we've, we've tended to read passages wrongly because we're squeamish about this. What did I say? 1 Corinthians, right? 1 Corinthians 7. This is a classic example. If you understand the syntax or the pattern of the book of 1 Corinthians, you understand that Paul is answering questions that were sent to him. Okay? And in verse number 7, he says, he starts the list of questions. And it's funny that he puts this one at the top. Now for the matters you wrote about, colon, that's a good translation of this. Here's the question. You wrote about this. It's not good. Uh, I'm sorry. It is good for a man not to marry. This has been a problem in the church for years, and it's why the Song of Solomon is there, right? The whole celibate priesthood, the whole, if you're really godly, you won't want sex. That is not a biblical thing, and it was something they asked him about, and his response is a response that he is He's pro-marriage and pro-sex. That's what's happening in the passage. But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. And when you see this word here, have, right? each man should have his own wife, it's not like I got my wife right? and I got my husband. It ain't about being married. This is about sex. Each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. And the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body doesn't belong to her alone, but also to her husband in the same way the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Don't deprive each other except by mutual consent for a time that you may devote yourself to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. That whole concept, and if you unfold this, and it's a good series perhaps to listen to, we've preached through the, every phrase of this carefully, you'll see that there is a concern that Paul is addressing where the church is squeamish about this whole thing. And he's saying, no, you need to be having sex in marriage. It's important. That's what the book of Song of Solomon is all about. And so we should accept it for what it is. And that is a celebration 
of, uh, of sex and sensuality in marriage. And that, that's a problem the church has had because they find that a hard thing. It's like eating, you know. Um, we seem to do all right with that command, right? To enjoy the foods given us to us from God. But uh, Satan has really hijacked this whole topic. Anyway, blah, 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 blah. Didn't mean to talk about that. But Ecclesiastes. I'm so glad our women this year at the women's retreat dove into the book of Ecclesiastes. It is a neglected book, and it's usually neglected because it doesn't feed me spiritually, spiritually either. It just depresses me. It's too negative and it's too skeptical, right? Chasing after the wind. It's all just useless. What are we doing all this for? And, and I like the fact uh, that we tried to put this in context in a weekend. That's a really good way to uh, tackle this. How many of you went to the women's retreat? Now, my wife preached on the last day, did she not? At least she went there saying she was going to do that. She did that, right? That's the point of the book. And, and, and it's, so, it's, a, it's a lengthy, it's a lot like Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. It's a homily. It's a sermon. That's what Ecclesiastes means, the preacher. And in this is a long device to show you that nothing else satisfies or is important but to fear God and keep his commandments. In that, I mean, that is it. And, and so I think if you get this book and you see it for what it is and you start from beginning to end and you move through it quickly, you see the device, which is more of a homiletical device than a literary device. You see God making his point. So I hope I don't need to defend that, especially to the gals that worked through it at the recent women's retreat. It's a great book and, and makes its point, although it does belabor, it seems, this skeptical, negative, chasing after the wind motif. Here's the other one. We've already mentioned this one, Esther. It's been questioned from time to time as an anti-legomena book. It's been spoken against because of its authority. I mean, how can this be a book from God if it doesn't even mention God's name? And thus, the apocryphal writing of Esther was to try and bolster it up. But I don't think it needs to be bolstered, right? God's name is not mentioned. Oh, and by the way, another thing, which is only true of two other books, I think, uh, not even quoted in the New Testament. I think only two. Job's only quoted once. But anyway, because the New Testament didn't quote it, and because God's name's not in it, a lot of folks said, and you know, well, maybe it doesn't belong in the canon. But what an important book for us to see God's providence. Purim is obviously discussed as the establishment of a ceremony in Israel, initially accepted but debated from time to time. Ezekiel is another one for accuracy. Some of the words from chapter 1 to chapter 10, speak about the law in a way that the rabbis didn't like. And the rabbis, though they embraced this book as, as prophetic and from a prophet, they started to debate it amongst themselves. And this has been more of a Jewish discussion that they didn't like the way uh, Ezekiel was talking about the law of Moses. Christians struggled with the first part of it. And because they don't like much the book of Revelation when they start looking into it, some people struggled with that. They thought that Ezekiel also was a little bit too Gnostic. It was too much, there was too much information that was esoteric. And um, that was used in the 4th, 5th century where people started to say, it sounds like a Gnostic writing, which of course was centuries before the Gnostics. So it hasn't held water and most people have dismissed the negative press of the book of Ezekiel. Proverbs is another one, but only for one reason. I've only heard one argument. I've tried to read on these topics and, and I... I, I find everyone in church history coming back to this one statement in Proverbs 26. Contradictory Proverbs. We don't like this one statement. 
And it comes down to Proverbs 26, 4 and 5, where it says, don't answer a fool according to his folly or you'll be like him. Or answer a fool according to his folly or you'll be wise in, or he may be wise in his own eyes. I think that's a beautiful pairing of proverbial statements where you need to answer guys who are being stupid sometimes, and then sometimes you need to stay away from guys who are being stupid. And the point is, you've got you've to weigh those decisions carefully. And he's giving you the negative on both sides. That one's the weakest one of all. That's why I listed it last. But uh, it is last, right? Is that the last double dashes you have there? I don't think that's a problem at all. Matter of fact, proverbs are proverbs which means they're generally true as principles. They may not be true in every case. And he's proving that by putting these Proverbs side by side. Don't answer the fool, answer the fool. That's weak. Hebrews, probably the strongest, although I shouldn't say that. I'm going to name one more that's been the biggest debated New Testament book. But this has been a big one. Uh, Hebrews because of authorship. If you read carefully Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, you get the clear picture that this is not a Pauline book. Paul did not write this book. And there were some that used to claim, well, surely Paul did write this book. But most people have concluded, well, it's not from Paul, and I don't know who the author is. And if you ask me who the author of Hebrews is, I will say with church history, I'm not sure who wrote the book of Hebrews. Perhaps Apollos, I don't know. The Eastern church for a lot of years considered it Pauline. The Western church didn't, which is partly reflected in the canonical order. Think about it. You understand your canonical order, right? Gospels first. Start with the longest one, okay? And if you take the synoptic gospels, whatever. Those have got their own order we'll talk about a little bit later. Acts, obviously, stand alone. The letters of Paul now come from Romans, right? All the way to, where does it stop? Philemon, right? We go from large to small. We start with letters to churches, large ones to small. Letters to people, large ones to small. Then Hebrews, 13 chapters. If it's a Pauline book, it's going to be up in the Pauline section of letters to large churches, large groups of people. And it's going to be either after 2 Corinthians. It's going to be after 2 Corinthians. That's where it's going to be. Uh, 16 chapters in 1 Corinthians. Got to keep those together. There's Romans 16 chapters. Hebrews 13 chapters. That's going to be there. But it's not. So who wrote Hebrews? Not sure. But there's enough there, and I've gone through every phrase of that book. We did it not long ago for three years. Clearly, apostolic authority, clearly uh, restatement of apostolic truth. The greatest thing about it, much like Ecclesiastes, which is an Old Testament antilegomena book, it is a homily. It's a, it's a sermon, and if you read chapter 13, you'll see that. So these two books are unique books in that they encapsulate in sermonic form biblical truth. One in the Old Testament, one in the New, and both have been criticized because of that. All right, let's talk about New Testament. Oh, we're already in New Testament. Hebrews is New Testament, Mike. I'm learning my Bible books. James. Let's talk about James. This has been one book that has caused the reformers some consternation, and that, that is the book of James. When the church clarified the problem with this whole justification by faith which had been existent in the church but had lost its way in the corruption of the, the Roman theology. It was clear that Romans taught that you are saved or justified by faith without works. James said, faith without works is dead. How can that faith save you? Don't you know that faith without works, I mean, it's not going to do it for you. It doesn't, it's not enough, okay? Luther, Martin Luther said, this book flatly contradicts Paul and the rest of Scripture. 
And though we softened on that later, I think there's an exegetical key here that will solve the problem. But in James chapter 2, verse number 4, that's the highlight of the problem for people. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. The context of that, Abraham sacrificing Isaac, Rahab hiding the spies. The question in this case is, are we talking about forensic justification of God, which is the whole topic of Romans 4 and 5, or are we talking about the justification that comes in our eyes and the eyes of those around us by the works accompanying faith? Faith without works is dead, right? I mean, you are saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. That's what James is doing. This is not a forensic discussion on God declaring people righteous. It's about us being able to see that Abraham trusts God because he's willing to put Isaac on an altar and Rahab trusts God because she's willing to save people who come into her house at great risk to herself. Justified by whom? By God or by people? By people watching? By yourself? That's the point of James. And the church has overshadowed even the strong voices of people like Luther in the 16th century and said, this is a biblical book. Second Peter. This has been, just for your information, if you didn't know, the most contested book in all of the New Testament, the book of Second Peter. Eusebius questioned it early on. Calvin questioned this book. And for one reason, okay, the authorship. How can this be Peter? Because if you take the Greek New Testament of First Timothy, and you, or First Peter, and you take the Greek New Testament of Second Peter, they're very different. Stylistically, people struggled with this. And rightly so. If you're an exegete, you can't help but see the difference. The answer has been an amanuensis. The answer, I think, and it's rightly so, has been an amanuensis. You know what an amanuensis is? Amanuensis is a, uh, someone who takes dictation, someone who writes as you dictate. Very common. And Jerome in the 5th century was one to suggest this. And as I read, and I may be remembering this wrong, he suggested this for Second Peter, but I'm suggesting it for First Peter. As a matter of fact, Second Peter is more simple and I went through this again this week. There are more uh, unique words in 1 Peter than there are in 2 Peter. I know it's shorter. It is simpler in many ways. Uh, 2 Peter as opposed to 1 Peter. Look at 1 Peter, would you, chapter 5 real quick. There's a statement here that I think speaks of an amanuensis. That's a fun word to say, amanuensis. Here, I think, is the hint. 1 Peter chapter 5. Oh, and by the way, Acts chapter 4, do you remember the thing they were saying about Peter and John when they were preaching? How can they preach like this? They are unschooled, untrained. Now, Luke was a physician. Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I mean, you had a lot of highly educated guys. Peter was a teenage fisherman when Jesus met him. Okay? If anyone's going to have trouble putting together, I'm assuming... And I know a lot of people run to Peter's defense in Acts 4. The commentaries say, well, untrained just means that he's not trained in the Pharisees. He's a fisherman. He's probably in his early 20s at best. I don't know where he had time to develop his, his writing skills. So take a look at this in light of that, just knowing who we're dealing with. We're not dealing with Paul. We're not, we're not dealing with, uh, with um, Luke or Matthew even. We're dealing with a fisherman not an accountant, not a, not a scholar. Verse 12, 1 Peter 5, 12. Did I already say that? Gave you the chapter, did I? 1 Peter 5, with the, what's the third word? Help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly. My suggestion is Silas is the amanuensis, uh, and either we have a different amanuensis in 2 Peter, or we got 
a different crack at it here, amanuensis is very common in the New Testament. If, you want, if, that's a, if that's news to you, by the way, and you want some proof for that, you might want to jot down the book we're studying now, Romans 16.22, as the crowds scream <laughs> in excitement. Romans 16.22, there's an amanuensis that took down Romans, the book of Romans. He says it, I wrote this down in my own word, I, Tertius, greet you in the Lord. Second Thessalonians 3.17, good example of Paul, I know this is a step away logically, showing that he is now taking the pin from his amanuensis, and he says, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is my distinguishing mark in all of my letters. This is how I write. His signature was to pick up the pen and to write, but certainly Paul, as an educated scholar, is using an amanuensis like we would use a computer. Colossians 4.18, 1 Corinthians 16.21, Galatians 6.11, all of those kind of a reverse admission of an amanuensis. Second Thessalonians 3.17, Colossians 4.18, 1 Corinthians 16.21, Galatians 6.11, if you want those. 2nd and 3rd John, let's do this real quick. This is not a hard section here. 2nd and 3rd John doesn't tell us who wrote it. There's no clear indication. It just says, from the presbyteros, from the elder. And they say, well, it's different from 1st John. It's very brief, but he does build on his theology. And all I can say is from the earliest times and the earliest of the church, they embrace 2nd and 3rd John as being from John. It was only questioned later, and there's no reason to doubt that the early church got it wrong. Even though he doesn't give his name, he clearly is building on 1 John as he writes personal letters in 2 and 3 John. Jude was questioned, and this is a good point. I should elaborate on this. I only have two minutes, but here I go. Why was Jude questioned? Because in verse 14, he quotes the book of Enoch. And in verse 9, he speaks of something that was written in the Assumption of Moses, the book of Enoch and the Assumption of Moses are both pseudepigraphal books. The church and the, and the Hebrews never embraced those as God-breathed, but he quotes them. And people said, like a lot of people say today, you can only quote perfect people. <laughs> you can only quote godly people, not so. Paul did this all the time. Titus 1.12, he says to Titus, even one of your own prophets has said, Cretans are lazy liars, right? Always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Acts 17, 28, he says to the Athenians, even as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Quoting a non-Christian, quoting a heretic, quoting a pseudepigraphal book is something we need to get over. Guilt by association is not a biblical principle. You are associating all the time with all kinds of things that are unbiblical. Paul said you'd have to leave the world if you didn't. And sometimes didactically in teaching, you're going to enlist a quote from someone who may not be ever invited to preach a sermon at your church, but the way he put it or what he said is helpful in the delivery of biblical truth. One more, the book of Revelation, accuracy. People struggled with the eschatological battles, and this is the weakest one on the list, but people struggled over Revelation 20, especially when the millennial discussions heated up late in church history. It was very late in church history. They started to say, well, maybe Revelation doesn't belong in the Bible because of that whole discussion of the thousand years. And even a thousand years into the church, they say, well, a thousand years have passed now and Christ didn't come back. And if it's a thousand years we're talking about in the current day, maybe this is wrong. There you go. Millennium in Revelation 20 was debated. Okay, watch what I'm going to do now. Watch what I'm going to do now. We're going to do the whole thing here. I know we have no time for this, but this one slide, two slides. Homo legumenea. Homo the same, right? Logos to speak. This is that we all speak together on this. We all speak as one. 
If I didn't mention a book until lately, then those books were virtually accepted by everyone. All the books I didn't mention. I don't need a partial, partial list for this. Historically, they were unchallenged. Now, obviously, there was someone somewhere challenging every book. But for the most part, if I didn't list one of those books, those 13 books, then they have been generally appreciated as canonical from the beginning, with very few exceptions. And while some had exposure to smaller lists early, early in the church, as they were exposed to more of the apostolic books, specifically in the New Testament, they weren't debated or challenged. Look at that, two minutes late, and we got to the end. 